How's it, everyone? And welcome to Two Critics in a Film Tree, the uh, most eclectic podcast in South Africa. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm half of your host, Nicholas Larimer. And of course, today we are joined by the other half of your hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel Krauser. I, 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 uh, I'm liking eclectic. And uh, one of the quirky things about this podcast is sometimes we're super sober and uh, technical and dry and sometimes we are very silly and have a few drinks uh, and the drinking rule is if I mention the name call me Anthony Appiah you have to have a drink uh, <laughs> today I'm opening a castle milk stout I don't know if you can hear that delicious no that was that was very good that was a good sound, a good Friday sound. And I'm doing that because it's Friday and we're finally shooting this podcast on Friday. But also because I've got some really bad news and I feel like it goes with a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're like someone, an old friend who calls for the first time in ages and then you go, oh man, this is great. And then it turns out they just want to ask you for money. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, this is this is this is really sad. I'm I've been I mean, I'm sort of still emotionally processing it. Mm-hmm. Um but I am I'm kind of I feel like there's a mental leap to be taken here. So, here's what I've been up to for a lot of this week. I've been doing what far too few scientists and journalists have been doing which is which is calculating herd protection for various co-variables so okay. the first thing i want to do is just say we're speaking about the virus here right we're talking about corona yeah not not cattle or something <laughs> Not herd protection in that sense, no. So this is the thing. So a lot of people have been like, you know, should we say herd protection or population protection? I'm fine with saying herd protection uh, because we're animals. And I'm not, you know, we talk about the esteem economy a lot here. And there's just a thing to notice, which is that one can try so hard to use words that will preserve the esteem of people and avoid disesteem either of the human race as a whole or of particular subgroups, that you run into bad problems. Uh, one of the cases in point from this week is uh, Salim Karim, the head of the consortium advising the Command Council on how to deal with coronavirus, reiterating on live news at a sort of grand imbizo with 10 other scientists that you shouldn't call it the South African strain, you should call it 501Y.V2, which is what I've done on this podcast and I've done on in my writing about this in briefings. 501Y.V2, you know, it's a, it's a perfectly good name. Uh, but South African strain is just easier oh. to talk about and you shouldn't get fussy about it if right. it's at the cost of driving home very serious points. Likewise, herd immunity is not something to get fussy about. Um, what we should be doing is trying to, what we should have been doing for the last year, and I think what Nicholas and I have been talking about, um, but now hopefully with greater precision, is the difference is a real conceptual difference, not just a symbolic like how to have greater or, 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 or less offensive connotations, but real denotative difference between herd immunity and herd protection. And this is how I define herd immunity. Herd immunity is that level of herd protection at which the average person can act as they did in 2019 while viral spread population-wide shrinks. In other words, it's sufficient herd protection that we can get back to normal. We can get rid of social distancing and it won't have an effect. And this is not just social distancing regulations. This is voluntary social distancing. Yeah. And the peer pressure and esteem economy effects of like dissing people who go out to parties and all that kind of stuff. You can get rid of all of that. Everyone can go back to normal and it still won't spread. So that's herd immunity. 
is sufficient herd protection to get to that point that you can go back to normal and it won't spread. So what's herd protection? Well, herd protection is what happens the moment someone becomes less susceptible to getting the virus. And the two basic ways that that happens is either they get vaccinated or they recover. And so their immune system has, uh, has a protective response. Now, in crunching the numbers, you sort of start out with the assumption that, and, and, and I'm starting out following Oxford University best practice, New England Journal of Medicine best practice. I'm really trying to follow in the footsteps of people much uh, more sort of experienced than me. You start out with the assumption that everyone who has protection has 100% protection. So if you've recovered, there's no chance you'll be reinfected. If you've been vaccinated, there's no chance you'll be reaffected. Nick, I can and we don't know that for sure. Sorry. And we don't know that for sure, but it seems pretty likely, right? No, so that's we know for sure that it's not true. We know for sure that vaccines are not 100% protective. There's no vaccine that's 100% protective. And we know for sure that people who were infected with the original strain can become reinfected with the yes, second. Yes, but it's just uh, my point is it's just it's it seems to be very few people. Uh, right. So it's right. a useful approximation to start out with, um, and 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 it and it's very useful for a bunch of things and for for people who are interested in visuals. Um, uh, some of the briefings are going to be turned into pieces that have nice graphs that you can look at to get a sense of what kind of trade-off there is. One of the things to note is that if you if you make an assumption of 100% protection per person infected, recovered, or vaccinated, then once 25% of the population has been infected, if the R0, which is the average rate of reproduction, uh, sorry, the R naught is the average rate of penetration. This is another term I'm coming up with as a more concise way to describe what the scientists call uh, something very long-winded. So R naught is like, I've got the virus, I'm an average person, how many people am I going to inject with viral particles? And if everyone was a COVID virgin, if no one had any protection, that would also be the number of people that get infected if the injection is above a high enough viral load. But if some people are not COVID virgins, then it's going to come down, right? So if I'm going to infect 10 people, but half of them already been infected, that means I'm only actually going to infect five people. Now, if you look at the proportions that you need to get uh, the effective rate down to one, and once one person's only infecting one more person, no more than that on average, then the virus is no longer uh, exponentially growing. And if you bring it down just a little bit, the virus is actually shrinking away. Uh, so to get it down to one with an R naught of 1.35, the average person is injecting 1.35 people, you need 25% of the population infected. Why does that matter? It matters because the estimates coming out of official sources, the Coronavirus Command Council, and coming out of uh, trustworthy outside scientists, and coming out of the Institute of Race Relations, in particular me, was that South Africa's R0, the number of people the average person was injecting, was between 1.3 and 1.4. And the best estimates coming from Discovery and Professor Mahdi, who's the head of public health at WITS, and Professor Swao at Swao, at uh, UCT and so on, is that about 25% um, of the population was infected, about 15 million people in and around August to October. So it looks like population, and that's why Professor Mahdi said, you know, herd, he said herd immunity, but he, then he spent a long time trying to qualify that. So I'm saying herd protection is what bent the curve downwards in the spring of 2020. Then the virus gets better at spreading. It gets better at spreading for sure, um, even disregarding uh, escape mutations where it learns to reinfect people, just learning how to infect people more readily, whether or not they've had it before, uh, which is called a host mutation. We discussed this uh, two weeks ago. That increased by, let's say, 30 to 50 percent. And you've got uh, an increased. So that pushes the R0 up from 1.35 to like 1.7, 1.8. And you've got a change in behavior. People are going on holiday, more people going 
to parties in December, that pushes R up to two, shall we say. So the average person is injecting two people. And with the herd protection that we've got, that's no longer enough. So more and more people get infected. And what is the number that those basic inputs would predict is the point at which uh, herd protection would then be sufficient to turn the curve downwards again. It would be around 50%. So that suggests that about 50% of people have the virus right now. Uh, if you believe the numbers coming out of Discovery and Mahdi and so on in August, October, then that would in any case be the kind of number that you'd expect now. Uh, but that's another way of putting it. Okay, so this is kind of covering ground that we've already been over, Nick. Here's the depressing conclusion from numbers that I haven't given to you, but let me give you the conclusion first and then we can talk about it. I don't think we're ever going to drive SARS-CoV-2 extinct. That's a bold claim. And when you look into the numbers, it becomes clear that it is possible but that the kinds of numbers that you need to do it are extremely high. So let's talk about measles. Measles are very dangerous and in a lot of very sophisticated countries uh, and some unsophisticated countries like South Africa, vast portions of the population are vaccinated against it. Often 95%. Okay. Right. So this is the calculation I want to try and get you to do. So let's say everyone who gets the measles vaccine is 100% protected. What R0 can we have with 95% being infected so that RE equals 1? so that it's not growing exponentially. I don't know. So this is the thing you need to, uh, that people would do very well to think about. RE, the effective rate, the real rate that is growing, is exactly the number of people the average person injects multiplied by the proportion of the population that is fully protected. So if the proportion of the population, uh, sorry, not multiplied by the proportion of the population that's fully protected, multiplied by the proportion of the population that's fully vulnerable. So the proportion of the population that's fully vulnerable is 5%. As a fraction, that's 1 over 20. So I'm saying something times 1 over 20 equals 1. Right. Re. RE equals R0 times proportion naive, proportion fully unprotected. And the proportion fully unprotected is 5%. It's 1 over 20. RE, I'm saying what would it take to have RE equals 1? That's when the virus is not growing exponentially. What times 1 over 20 equals 1? I'm pretty sure on the box it said there would be no maths. Nick, <laughs> don't be a... Don't be a, a, a silly. Something <laughs> times 1 over 20 equals 1. What is that something? I don't know, 20? Correct. 20 times 1 over 20 equals 1. So it turns out that the R0 for measles is something like 20. That means if you get measles, it's so contagious that you will inject your measles viral, you'll inject your measles into 20 other people. It means, you know, you get measles, you, 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 you go to school and you're in a class of 15. You're going to infect everyone in the class and the teacher that's 16 and you're going to infect your parents on the way. And you're going to infect someone walking down the corridor, okay, 20. Mm. Well, some people will infect five, some people will infect, infect 40 if they're in a bigger classroom. But that's how scary measles is. The average person that gets it will inject that virus into 20 people. Now, if the average person is injecting the virus into 20 people, you need 95% of the people to be vaccinated and the vaccines to be 100% protective in order for measles not to spread throughout society. Are you with me? 
I'm with you. It's a tricky bugger, measles is. It's a tricky bugger. Now the paradox is, it sounds like holy smokes. It's so hard to beat measles if only 94% of the population is vaccinated or only 90% of the population is vaccinated or more to the point if 95% of the population is vaccinated but the vaccine is only 80% protective then measles should be spreading like wildfire because if it's RE above one that means it's spreading exponentially right and in order to stop that from happening with with an escape rate of 10%, the proportion of the population that would need to be vaccinated goes up to 99%. But we haven't in, in which, so is, how, which is which is yeah. why exactly there've been uh, measles outbreaks in some parts of the US where the anti-vaxxer movement has kind of uh, taken hold, particularly on I think on the West Coast. Um, there were some places where schools had little measles outbreaks because quite a lot of parents hadn't vaccinated their kids. But what I'm saying to you is, and that is true, that's 100% true, but what I'm telling you is even if 95% of people vaccinate, even if 98% of people vaccinate, but the vaccine only works 90% of the time, measles is going to spread like wildfire. So even if there's no anti-vaxxers, there's just someone who got a mistaken jab now and then, or someone who was on holiday in a different country when they had their baby and they didn't have the right vaccine or whatever, you know, 99% is a huge proportion of the population to do anything. Even then you'll, you'll still see some, some measles outbreaks and that's what we do see. Now, how do we stop measles? Why, why is it the case? I'm telling you mathematically that there's the vaccines just aren't good enough to stop measles unless 99% of the population gets vaccinated and that hasn't happened anywhere, even outside of America, even in countries where there's no anti-vax movement, that has not happened. So how have we stopped measles? Hmm, not sure, really. Um, well, we haven't. That we can... That's why there's still measles. We haven't right. stopped measles. Measles never went away. It is present at some level in pretty much every country. We have not stopped measles. Right. What Although, we have managed to do... Tis, tis not the problem it once was. In 1980, you know, two and a half million people died from it. And Correct. nowadays it's like 73,000 or something. Correct. So what we've managed to do is bring the amplitude down. So here's the way to think about this, right? If the rate, if the effective rate of reproduction is one... Every person on average is infecting one other person. Then the thing's going to survive. Right? And the effective rate for reproduction of measles has got to be around one. Because for its gestation period, a couple of weeks, if it came down even to 0.95, even if the average person was infecting 0.95 of a person, so it's really close to one, but it's a little bit below one, Measles would go completely extinct in a year. So the fact that it hasn't gone extinct means that it's, it's, it's really hovering very, very close to one. If it's below one, it's 0.9999999, you know? Right. But, this, but the amplitude point is if you only have at any given time around the world 5,000 people with measles, that means in the next two weeks, there are only going to be around 5,000 people in the world with measles, and in the next week, only another 5,000, and in the course of the year, it's only going to be around 100,000, and with an infection fatality ratio of 20%, that would mean 20,000 would die. Now, it's, you know, I've chosen those numbers, but you, you, you make it instead of 5,000, 10,000 or you just really what you should do is change the gestation period from two weeks to around nine days and then you come up with the estimated figures of measles deaths per annum. So measles has not been driven into extinction. It's not being driven into extinction and anti-vaxxers are, are, are helping it out but they're not really 
Yeah, well, that it's, it's a big part of the story, right? They're a big yeah, part of the story. Because it's such an infectious community. disease. Because it's such an infectious disease. But the flip side of it being so infectious is precisely how we've managed to keep the amplitude so low. So if there was a million people at any given time with measles, then measles would be killing far more people, even with an RE of one, than corona. There are about a million people with corona right now, let's say. I think it's slightly higher. Um, but the infection fatality ratio for coronavirus is about 0.3%, maybe as low as 0.08%. Uh, you know, so it's 8 in 10,000. Uh, measles, it's much higher. So, but the point I'm trying to get to now is the difference in amplitude for the same rate of growth. If there's constant growth, so it's every person just infects one other person. So it's not growing or shrinking as a share of the population. The thing that's going to make the biggest difference is, well, how many people have it in the first place? If it's 5,000, it's a relatively minor issue. If it's 5 million, it's a major issue. And corona is currently in the sort of millions, whereas measles is in the thousands. And those orders of magnitude overwhelm the orders of magnitude difference in infection fatality ratio, where measles is less, is much more deadly than coronavirus. But because there's so many more people that have coronavirus, even if we just get it to RE equals one, uh, it's going to kill many, many more people than measles does, many, many more people than any other infectious disease does. Uh, I mean, really, even more than, than TB worldwide. Uh, if the number of active cases just flatlines and everyone infects someone else. So now the thing to do is to figure out how have we kept the amplitude of measles so low? How have we kept it the case? Okay, we haven't managed to drive it extinct. We have managed to get the average person with measles to only infect one person with measles. How did we do that? Well, part of it is this mass vaccine thing because that does make it much harder for the measles to spread. If you, on average, inject yourself into 20 people uh, and 95% of them are vaccinated, that means 19 of them have been vaccinated and the vaccine is 90% effective. That means uh, 17 of them or 18 of them, let's say 18, are truly protected. So there's only two left the most the damage you can do and that you will do is to not only inject but also infect two people. Now, that's pretty scary. If every person is infecting two people and then the next two are infecting four, you quickly get that Chinese story with the chessboard and the grains of rice where, right. you know, by the time you get to 64, uh, two to the 64, there's more grains of rice than there are sort of atoms on the planet. Uh, there's more people infected than there are than there are people. That would be crazy. So why doesn't it happen that way? Why why isn't it the case that when 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 measles does break out, uh, it starts out with the average person even in a perfect even in a, the the most perfectly reasonable expectation you can have for a well vaccinated community? Why does it not then bloom every person infecting two people, four people, eight people, and so on? Because we change our naught. We change our behavior. If, some, if there's a, a, a measles outbreak at a school, immediately the school shuts down. Parents keep their kids at home. They get very, very nervous about it. And so that brings the behavioral side, the R naught on the behavioral side that started out as 20, that brings that down by uh, 75%. So now you go from combining the two factors. The vaccination brings it down from you, the average person is going to infect 20 down to the average person is going to infect two. And then the behavioral change that happens once a few people have infe been infected is they go down from the average person infecting two to the average person infecting 0.75. Right. And then the outbreak dies out. In that little area. Right. But it, but it gets just enough bite to keep going. And it's not altogether clear what the, what the index path is for measles, um, 
how how it manages to sort of uh, go into a sleeper cell is it through animals is it through asymptomatic infections uh which might be more prevalent in people that have been vaccinated than is strictly uh or than is commonly sort of thought of it's not exactly clear but that's that's what happens so between the mass vaccine you need two things to keep measles where where it's where it's not a global issue right you need 95% of the population to be vaccinated with a vaccine that's 90% effective and you need huge changes in behavior wherever there's a breakout here's the problem with coronavirus our vaccines are already less effective so the best vaccines are reporting a protection rate of 95% then you've got AstraZeneca at 70%. In vitro, you know, lab testing strongly suggests that the escape mutations are going to bring that down. The best estimate I got from a viral evolutionary biologist was it's going to bring it down by 20 to 30%. So that means 95%, you multiply, you don't just minus, 95%, if it comes down by 20%, this is the good news scenario, it comes down to something like 83%. 70%, if it just comes down by 20%, comes down to 56%. And the point that I'm hoping you're prepared for now is that if the vaccine, let's just say on average, is 80% effective, 80% protective, and every single person on the planet gets the vaccine, That means the protection rate is 8 over 10. What R0 times by 8 over 10 is going to give you an effective reproductive rate of 1? Well, 8 then, right? Huh? Did you say 8? Did you say 8 over 1? No, no, no. 8 over eight. 10. So it's eight 80%. Oh, 80% um... protective. If everyone takes the vaccine and the vaccine is 80% protective, what times 80% equals one? <laughs> what, what times eight over 10 equals one? I need a pen and paper, Gabriel. I can't do maths in, my, in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, something. Come on, you do the same. What times one over 20 equals one? 20 over one. You just turn them upside down. What times eight over 10 equals one? Uh, Ten I really can't do this without paper. Dude, Nicholas, take 8 over 10, turn it upside down. <laughs> <laughs> what happens if you turn... You don't have to express it as a digit. Just turn the fraction upside down. What? 10 over 8. Well done. I'm going to pour... I'm pouring you... A, I'm pouring myself a beer here. I'm finally... I'm making a new rule for this podcast is that you're no longer allowed to spring maths on me. 10 over 8 times 8 over 10 equals 1. That means if everyone is, in, is vaccinated and the vaccine is 80% protective, you can have an R naught of 10 over 8, which is something like 1 point... Um, 1.2, 1.3. Okay. Right. That that means the average person can inject 1.3 people. Right. And the vaccine is going to stop it from spreading uh, uh, exponentially. Right. So you're what, saying what you're getting to never, is that... We never got such a low R0. Hmm. So you're saying that even if we vaccinate basically everyone, then it's, and we have a fairly generous interpretation of how effective the vaccine is going to be, even with social distancing, we haven't gotten the spread low enough to completely crush the virus. Correct. Okay. But there are... Sorry, sorry, just to be clear, I, I did say, I did say, uh, 
I, I fumbled the numbers at the end there just a little bit, but you've summarized the idea very well. The idea is that if 80% of people are protected and you want to figure out the highest R0 that that can be consistent with, you're going to find an R0 of... Uh, my mistake was I was I was getting you mul to multiply by eight over ten, whereas I should have been getting you. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I should have been not, getting you to it's multiply by. Not just me by, who's incompetent. <laughs> it's not just you. It's not just you. I should have been getting you to multiply by two over ten. If, right. There you go. Which is the proportion that is still virally naive. Because the direct proportion is the proportion that's virally naive, that's unprotected, times by the R naught gives you the R e. So if 80% are protected, that means 20% are naive. And that's uh, 1 over 5. That means you can have an R0 of 5. So if business as usual means the average person is, in, is injecting the virus into six people, and the business as usual estimates that I've seen are higher than that, some of them, then even if everyone gets vaccinated, literally every single person, that still won't be enough to bring RE below one, which will mean the virus, what it will do is it'll change the amplitude. Right, so the but, thing won't be, you know, overloading hospitals and killing a thousand people a day. It'll be far more manageable. It will be getting around in an ugly way. And the way that that'll happen is it'll be like a roller coaster, is that you'll have like a, a we've had two rises and falls, you'll have another mm -hmm. rise and fall, another rise and fall. And by the time you've finished vaccinating absolutely everyone, you still, and then you open up. Remember, every time uh, you vaccinate more people or more people get immune through having contracted the virus, whether politicians like it or not, people are going to go closer back to business as usual right and that's what's going to drive the r naught up so even though your protection factor is going up your r naught goes up at a bit of a delay and in a bit of a sticky laggardly way which is why you get this roller coaster and the problem is that the roller coaster is gonna it's with with unless you've got a vaccine that's more resistant than our vaccines seem to be and unless herd protection proves to be uh, more effective than it seems likely to be with mutation, the best that you can do is hope that at the end of the roller coaster ride, what you end up having is a relatively low amplitude and a relatively stable rate of reproduction of one. So it settles out with, you know, in South Africa at any given time. 50 people, 50,000 people or 25,000 people having the virus. Right. Which with an infection fatality ratio of 0.3%, shall we say, is going to mean that, you know, one and a half thousand people could still be dying. If it's mm. lower, which is more likely for us because we've got a younger population of 0.08%, 50,000 people have the virus at any time. Uh, that's going to be less than 500 dying at any time but that's still pretty grim and does there not come a point however where i mean you do get everyone is either dead or immune so this is this is what would happen this is what you'd expect to happen right if you don't think about the possibility of a very low amplitude stable re and this is what i'm saying measles measles has been talked mm. about as part of the kind of archetypal uh you know epidemiological models that we have a very good grasp on as as the human race yeah, and so you know disease yeah and there's been vast vaccination programs and all kinds of things so yes this idea and i was guilty of having this idea too that like it's you know that it's true for a human being you get the virus either you're going to die or you're going to kill the virus well that is true but for the population uh, it's just not true. It's not true that the virus either has to go extinct or it has to sort of kill all people. Uh, what is what is the most likely to happen 
given the protection ratios that we're looking at in terms of reinfection, and those protection ratios are much higher than the vaccine, by the way. So reinfection still looks like it's it, it, it's 99% effective. And with a 99% effective protection against reinfection, or 99.9% protection against reinfection, you need something like 83% of the population to have been infected, and then you really will drive the virus extinct because mm. the protection layer is so high. But if it comes down to 95%, then you're exactly in measles territory. Then even if 95% of the population gets it, and it, for every 100 people who get it, 95 of them effectively cannot get it again, the virus still has enough to play around with at a very low amplitude. Okay. Amongst the remaining population. So... The idea of the vaccine driving it extinct, the idea of herd immunity driving it extinct is a, is a bad idea. This is my argument. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying it's a very bad idea. So I started out with trying to say, look, herd immunity has not been well defined. People have screwed around with, uh, you know, oh, are you calling me a cattle or whatever. It hasn't been well defined. Herd immunity is different to herd protection. The first person that gets vaccinated is already protecting those that are around them. The first person that recovers from infection is already protecting those around them. So herd protection begins from the first recovery and the first vaccination. You can find out how much protection you get for particular levels of the population that have been infected. If 20% of the population has been infected, then you're going to flatten the curve with an R0, a number of average injections, uh, from each person to the next person of 1.35, which is exactly what seems to have happened in South Africa through the winter, early spring. And so we flattened the curve through herd protection. But it wasn't herd immunity because behavioral changes and viral changes pulled that ratio down from 100% of people being protected that have been infected to something a little bit less and transmission increasing uh, quite seriously, quite substantially, maybe by 40%, maybe 30%, maybe 50%, and by behavioral changes. And all three of those things together mean that you go on the next upswing on the roller coaster. Then you reach the point where half the population has it. Now the herd protection is strong enough to bring it back down again. But uh, as behavior changes, as the virus mutates, and by the way, this virus has mutated in ways that substantially seem to alter protection factors, both from vaccines and from uh, recovery convalescent protection, in right. eight months. By the way, 229E coronavirus, which is the most common coronavirus, the common cold coronavirus that has been isolated in the 50s or the 60s, that's been genomically sequenced for mutations and adaptations since the 80s, that's been trialed, in, in a way that you can't do with SARS-CoV-2, which is through real challenging. So you put people in isolation and you inject, na you, 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 a nasal wash, they call it. You put the virus in some salt water and then you spate it up someone's nose to force them to get the thing. Then you see how good are they at defeating the virus. Now it's absolutely clear that after five years, the virus has mutated so much that 20% of people are still protected, but 80% of people, even who already had the thing five years ago, are not protected against the new strain. And the earliest uh, amount of time that it seems to take to evolve to substantially change protection is eight months. That is also the time that we've seen it take to get around uh, our protective system to some mm. degree with SARS-CoV-2. So we've got very good reason to expect that every eight months, the numbers are going to change just a little bit. So a vaccine goes from being 95% effective to 90% uh, effective. Right. At, at best. And then eight months later, from 90% effective to 85% to effective. At worst, it goes from 95% effective so, to 75% effective. And what I'm saying is based on measles, even if it stays at 95% effective, even if we update the vaccine and we do all that we can, if a vaccine is 95% effective, Everyone has to take it in order for it to go away. If a vaccine is 95% effective and only 95% of people get vaccinated, then it's not going away any more than measles has gone away. 
And in South Africa, where 50% of the population doesn't want to get vaccinated, if the vaccine ends up being 60% effective, because it started out with AstraZeneca something like 70 or 80%, and it's brought down by 20 to 30% by the mutations, then, and you only have half the population taking it, that is, that is nowhere close, nowhere close to what you need to stop the thing from spreading. And as long as its amplitude is sufficient, its evolving rate will be sufficient for it to keep ramping up the escape factor, the, the extent to which it manages to get right. our... I have, I have a question. I have a question, though, which is, do we know if there's any... So let's say you get vaccinated, but the vaccine doesn't end up protecting you from getting COVID. Is there any evidence to suggest that it reduces the severity? All of the evidence points in one direction, and the answer is yes. Okay. It reduces the severity. So, and also, you know, if you get reinfected with a mutant virus, does it reduce severity as well? Yes. Right. So in this situation, it doesn't go away completely, but it becomes indistinguishable from a cold or flu. Is that possible? Yes. Very possible. In which case... It's over by that. It's over in that way anyway. Yes. So, so the bad news that I'm trying to give you is that outside of some seriously extraordinary uh, developments, coronavirus is SARS-CoV-2 is not going extinct. That's the bad news. The good news is exactly what you're saying. You get the vaccine, you're much, much, much less likely to die. If you were going to die, if you were going to develop severe symptoms, you're much less likely to develop severe right. symptoms. If you got the SARS-CoV-2 Wuhan strain and then along comes the South African strain or along comes the next generation or the third generation or the fourth generation, you're much less likely to die from that as well. So the infection fatality ratio really does dip far below the flu. So that's the good news. You, you, you'll get to a point where people will die, will be dying it will be terrible, and the combination of vaccines and especially, uh, you know, infection recovery immunity in South Africa because because we're going to take so long to vaccinate, uh, <laughs> will will really bring the death numbers down. Will really make people feel quite secure. The bad news is, if you didn't get vaccinated and you didn't already catch it, your chances are just as likely of dying. And right. the virus is still definitely going to be out there spreading. And the right. and and so people are not going to want to leave home because they're going to worry about that and they're right to worry about it if they haven't been vaccinated. If they sort of are anti-vaxxers and they're keen to go out, they might not worry about it, but they might die. Some will die, and that's going to be tragic. The other great concern is government response. So the government's been acting as if coronavirus is going to go extinct. We will bring down, we will end lockdown, we'll end the sort of semi-proroguing of parliament, we'll end the command council, when and so on and COVID so forth, is gone. when COVID is gone. And what I'm, I'm telling you now until such is a time. <laughs> I can bet you, I would bet all of the gold that I own that COVID is that SARS-CoV-2. No, I don't want to make the bet that big, because let's let's give it a, a little while <laughs> wait, to see wait, if some wait, extraordinary wait. factors do gold, come out. How much gold do you have, Gabriel? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I can't, can't ever say that. But it seems to me like the like the most likely scenario. The numbers are telling me this. I didn't set out to show this. I was just trying to graph using the Oxford and, and New England Journal of Medicine's ways of mapping epidemic spread to take into account viral escape factor, the the ability of the virus to get around protection mechanisms, to take into account proportion naive, proportion infected, proportion vaccinated, and to take into account R0, the average uh, number of people being injected by the virus from a person who's infected. I was just trying to make pretty graphs for a presentation out of this stuff. And I started to realize how hard you would have to push the numbers in order to get to a point where you really drive the virus extinct. Well, this is presumably and, why a lot of the health officials keep saying things like, oh, we need to keep on social distancing for a long time and stuff. 
stuff like that. So yours, dude, yours and your, in fact, never, it'll never, if what you're waiting for is SARS-CoV-2 to go extinct like the smallpox, the answer is never. It is far, 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 three, let's say four fars, four orders of magnitude more likely to be like measles in mm. the best case scenario. <clears throat> so if you, if, 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 so I'm not saying that right now we should have no restrictions. I think right now we should absolutely still have border checks. People who are coming into the country or leaving the country should have to show that they've had a test recently and that they're negative. Because you don't want strains getting around too much. They have already, but you don't want too much more of that. And border control is something that I think is very important. I also think that bans on large gatherings right now are still a very good idea. Mm. Uh, until we've had a significant portion of the population vaccinated. And by the way, not just vaccinating any old person, a significant portion of the population that hasn't already been infected. If 50% of the population have been infected and you go and vaccinate 20% of them, you're not making any real difference. <laughs> yes, it's a bit of a waste. So until a significant portion of COVID virgins have been vaccinated, uh, we should have bans on 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 rugby matches, which makes me sad because I love nothing more than to go to Ellis Park and watch the Lions uh, beat some Australian team. Uh, but I think that would be hugely irresponsible because it would set up uh, a micro super, you know, super spreading event. So uh, I'm not arguing that all restrictions should go. I'm not even making an argument about any particular restrictions. Right now, I think the booze restriction is getting to the point of uh, being counterproductive because I think people have gone far enough around, you know, back into their old back channels and whatever that I'm not sure it's making much of a difference. But put that to the side. That's really not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is if you're listening to this podcast, you should think about, at least think about the possibility of the mental leap from thinking this is a short-term battle, whether it's a short-term is six months, whatever you originally thought it was. It'll be done by Easter. It'll be done by Christmas. It'll be done by the end of 2021. It'll be done by the end of 2022. You should think of shifting from believing that to believing that this virus is going to be around as long as you will. And once you start taking that thought in, and I've tried as best I can just with my voice and without being able to show you graphs and numbers to illustrate it. But but Nick was was able to follow the maths. Uh, so, I think, <laughs> so I think even an orangutan would be, <laughs> would be able to follow the maths. Hey, man, Dude, an orangutan it, is pretty intelligent. You know, they can use tools like saws. Yes, there we go. Just like you, dude. Are you, you even know how to use WhatsApp, man. Oh, God. Sometimes. <laughs> This thing, you shouldn't be, right now, the crazy thing is to expect this virus to go away. The same thing is to expect it to stick around. And if you're expecting it to stick around, I think that gives you a slightly different infection on terms of how to deal with it. It, 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 it changes vaccination from thinking we need to vaccinate so that we can get to the point where the virus goes extinct to we need to vaccinate to get to the point where we can go about our daily lives, but the and the virus is still around and it's still killing people, but it's just not killing that many people and it's not growing exponentially. You know, it's like twenty thousand people are infected at any given time and that's killing uh, five hundred people at any given time. And that sounds right. very harsh, but if you think about tuberculosis, if you think about measles, if you think about uh, any disease, yeah. HIV, you know. We just go about our ordinary business knowing that uh, that people are dying as a result, including the average seasonal flu, which is the comparison that I like the least because it's been the most politicized. But that's but one of the things that's going to change about your thinking. The other thing that's going to change about your thinking is, is that vaccination, the difference between having a vaccine and having a cure, where you think a vaccine can drive the thing extinct, is relatively small. Because if you think the vaccine can drive the thing extinct, then the cure would help those who are going to die in the meanwhile, in the course of 2021, right. while but we drive it's it gonna, If it's going to stick around, then we definitely need ourselves uh, better treatment, better cures, so that and we can, um, yeah, so we can actually stop people from dying in this long term. Yeah, so that we so that we make peace 
with this virus being just another thing that goes around, particularly in the playground. And by the way, you know, the 50-year view, which was given to me by, uh, again, by Professor Darren Martin's evolutionary biologist at UCT, this is the scenario that, that he thought was the most likely. Mm. He wasn't trying to argue this is a good idea, but he thought this was the most likely. And he said to me, you've got to think about it like this. If you go to any playground sandpit, if you go to any playground uh, nasal passage with a swab and you put it up that kid's <laughs> nose and you pull it out, you are going to find 5,000 viruses that have, would have wiped out 90% of people uh, in, the, in the 1400s. You know? Right. So this is what viruses do. The 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 amplitude that I was talking about, this, this sort of natural resting place for a virus where it's got a low amplitude, it's not infecting many people, and it's got slight little peaks and slight little dips. So it's like a sine wave, you know, it's like it goes up and down, like a roller coaster with a very smooth up, down, up, down, up, down. But amplitude is like the difference between the top and the bottom is quite small, um, and the absolute value that it's riding around is quite low, which follows from the amplitude being quite small. This is what happens to most viruses. They end up concentrating the only place that they, once they've killed everyone else or failed to reinfect people because they can't evolve fast enough to, to reinfect the, the most well-adapted human beings, the last place they have to go is the playground. And the kids generally do very well at surviving the viruses. Uh, so it's a lot of slightly symptomatic or asymptomatic cases. And, and, that's, where the, and that's where the virus lives on. And every now and then, the little kid goes to play with Granny, and he gives her a cold, and Granny dies. Mm -hmm. That is, that has been life. That was your life in 2019. You might not have realized it, but that was your life. That <laughs> yes. was your, and and I realized it because one of my nephew's grandparents had double bypass surgery, and suddenly the next Christmas there was this great anxiety about whether and how to deal with the kids coming around because her doctors were like, dude, your immune system is extremely weak. You know, this yeah. is not going to be it the greatest go time, time in the world for mm. you to, to, to hang out with, uh, with small people. Mm. So I don't want to be the guy that says children are the devil, but like, <laughs> you know, we all believe in the youth and we love the youth, but that is right now, given yourself. the rate of mutation that's been demonstrated by the virus, given the preliminary evidence of escape capacity, it looks very much like we're going to be stuck in a world with SARS-CoV-2 uh, eventually infecting a lot of children. And every year, some of those kids are going to infect their grandparents and they're going to die. Right. But uh, it does, in terms of what you should do as an individual, um, is get vaccinated, presumably. Well, look, make your own informed choice. I think that based on the information that I have available to me, it's a no-brainer. Um, I do yeah, think look. that. I do think. I, I do think. Um, uh, from a lobbying point of view, the institute is trying extremely hard to lobby the government to increase vaccine capacity to allow private actors to play more of a role. And I think people that would rather have Moderna than AstraZeneca, based on its improved protection factor. Uh, and the extra cost of keeping it colder and whatever being something that they're willing to bear. Uh, if they can get that together, the government should be playing no role in stopping that. And that's not something that seemed to matter to me very much before I started thinking about this data. But the difference between 95% and 70% is a serious difference. And I do think AstraZeneca's, uh, it's not as low as 70%. Um, it's more like 80% if you do a like-for-like -like comparison. But then when you bring in the escape mechanisms of the virus, it does start looking like a, a, a the kind of difference you might be willing to throw a thousand rand at again. And people who want to do that, knock yourself out. People who are worried about the Chinese vaccine, you know, stay away from it. I think Sputnik, <laughs> the Russian vaccine, is great. My mother-in-law has just got a second jab. Uh, my grandmother-in-law just got her first jab. She's 86. Both She got it a week ago. Both of them reported yeah. no symptoms. The data coming out of Russia looks very good. It's a very old-style vaccine. It's so not very fancy. So yes. I'm all for that. But I think from a lobbying point of view, we need to wake up. One of the mental shifts that I was trying to suggest is that vaccine plus cure seems like, what's the difference between just a vaccine and a vaccine and a cure? 
if the vaccine is going to drive the thing extinct. Well, it's a real difference and it's a tragic life and death difference to some people, but it's a relatively small number of people. If you think this thing is going to be around forever, vaccination is just not nearly enough. It's a good idea. I do encourage it, but it's not nearly enough. We really need to be um, joining the call to not only take very seriously ivermectin, but to ask why it is that you can find ivermectin you know, developed by the Japanese 50 years ago, used on millions of people around the world since, uh, something that was floated and promised that trials would be undertaken to study its capacity of defeating SARS-CoV-2 in April last year, in South Korea, in Taiwan, in, uh, in the States, you know, very serious places, all thought about using ivermectin, doing trials, why were there so few trials? Why were the promises so big and then it pushed away? Well, I think it's going to be hard to get away from looking at hydroxychloroquine, which was a similar treatment, which was politicized and was said by the sort of powers that be at the WHO and CNN and so on to be a, a terrible idea and also said by a very reckless Donald Trump to be a miracle cure. No one should be calling anything a miracle cure. So there are bad mistakes on both sides. And what happened was stalling of trials, all kinds of silly shenanigans. And now I just uh, read the abstract of a New England Journal of Medicine uh, article saying, you know, unequivocally, indubitably, hydroxychloroquine is an effective treatment for SARS-CoV-2. It should be being used. It should have been being used. It's not nearly as good as ivermectin promises to be. But it's the kind of curative, uh, you know, treatment that yeah, reduces uh, number of deaths, that kind of thing. That significantly reduces the number of deaths. I believe that ivermectin. I suspect that ivermectin was quashed. That ivermectin trials were quashed because of the politicization of hydroxychloroquine, and that SARPA's attitude to the, to this day is a bit of a hangover from that. And yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, I, I I I try to empathize with those people who have not seen the urgency of curative uh, medical treatments. And part of what I see in their mind's eye is a worry about the orange orangutan. Let's leave him be. Part of what I see in their mind's eye is like, how much of a difference does it make anyway if we can drive this thing extinct? We can't drive it extinct. We need to take it very seriously. And, you know, if I can wrap up this section with an anecdote, yesterday I spoke with someone whose uncle died over the weekend of SARS-CoV-2. They asked if they could use ivermectin. The doctor said yes, but only if you get a consent form. And because he hadn't appointed power of attorney to anyone, um, the doctors were feeling extra worried. They weren't just like the wife has to sign. They were like, we want the whole family to sign on. informed consent. You need to know this is an off-label usage. You need to know that this drug was not developed in order to treat SARS-CoV-2. You need to know that there are known side effects associated with it. You need to know that we're going to be using a dosage which is uh, low enough that we're not sure if it's going to beat the thing, but high enough that it's on the high end of where it might produce side effects. Are you willing to do that? They said yes. They signed. They got back to SARP, to the doctors. The doctor said SARP has changed their story. We can't do this unless it's part of a trial. And we can't, and there's no time to establish an official trial yet. There's no official trial. And SARPA's new movement last week was to say you cannot use it, and you cannot use it for compassionate care usage, which is what I've just described: off-label informed consent. Uh, you have to do it under trial conditions, which, by the way, generally means there has to be a control group getting sugar water. Fifty percent of the people getting ivermectin will actually be getting sugar water, which is why most people right. don't want to go on trials for off-label usage because they because really you don't want, want to get, the drug. Yeah, right. So so that itself is like a bit of a nightmare. Anyway, so then they illegally um, smuggled ivermectin into the hospital and into her uncle's body, and his blood oxygen levels went from 80% to 90% to 97% in two days. It had exactly the kind of effect in that particular case that has been found to be the 80% of the time situation in a meta-analysis of over seven studies. So that's a good news story. No, no, Nick, it's a very sad story. He died. He died because at that stage, in the week that it took to do the back and forth about trying to get the ivermectin, he was sitting on a ventilator. It strained his heart to the point that he just died of a heart attack. Mm. 
Indeed. Yeah, that's a tragedy. And um, it, uh, so we, it's actually, no, we, it's, it's, it's scary how often in South Africa people die from bureaucracy, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very uh, common tragedy in this country. Um, but I think, you know, smart countries like South Korea, people I've been speaking to on the ground in Seoul say people are much more enthusiastic about um, this kind of curative treatment than in New York, where, where, where the, the vibe I'm getting from my friends is they're still, they're still looking at this through the eyes of like, are you for or against Donald Trump? And we really need to get past that. We really need to look at the numbers. We need to look at the fact that the in vaccine, so many ways. <laughs> the vaccine is super important. I'm really not trying to knock the vaccine by saying it's yeah, it's just not the, enough. But let's look at the one of the world's greatest and most successful vaccine programs, measles. Dude, measles did not go extinct. We haven't beaten mm. measles, even in countries where there's 95% of the people getting vaccinated. You re you really need to get it for a 95% effective vaccine. You need to get it up to 97%. You know, those little small percentage differences become very important. And inside, so it is possible to drive it extinct just with a vaccine, even if the vaccine doesn't offer 100% protection. But it's but the numbers become so, the difference between 93% and 97% becomes so important Uh that you need well, to recognize yeah, South Africa is just not in that universe. We're not even yeah, we can't we, we don't even have one vaccine. Right. Um and and the good vaccines require electricity, which we don't have enough of. <laughs> yeah. And they require guys to know how to keep the fridge on or plug in a generator or right. make sure that when you get Johnson and Johnson for the first jab, you don't get AstraZeneca for the second jab. By the right. way, another worry about Johnson and Johnson is I'm not sure that uh we're not gonna be stuck in the situation where a lot of us aren't already immune to the vaccine, as it were, which is to say the dummy virus, the vessel virus that the that the important uh, RNA is contained in is something that South African immune systems are already uh, resistant to. So your immune system will attack the vaccine before it gets to do its job. That that was flagged in August already as being a major concern for Johnson & Johnson, which is why I was very surprised to see uh, that that was one of our big orders. Uh, now, it might be the case that uh, subsequent uh, studies and developments have shown that it's not something to worry about, but uh, I haven't been able to find those subsequent developments and studies, and my emails to uh, government officials in this regard have not been answered. So I don't think that they're That's even thinking about surprising. that. Mm. All right, so we're on just over an hour now. Um, so let's kind of start wrapping up. Uh, do you have any recommendations for our listeners this week? I have one. Oh God, we were only supposed to talk about this for half an hour. So oh, we, I never, we, we never do. <laughs> but also, uh, you were so filled with fire and fury and passion that I couldn't, I couldn't slow you down there, Gabriel. It was just, <laughs> it was just like pure. And then you started tormenting me with maths, and you know, we lost the plot. Dude, are we, gonna, we are going to see in our numbers. Like, it might be that no one, like, has listened to this podcast because, but by the third time that I asked you. Uh, what <laughs> times eight over ten equals one? <laughs> you see, you see, the, the the great the great thing is that we're going to have half half of the audience will be sympathising with me, and half of the audience will be thinking that I'm the stupidest man on earth. <laughs> no, I think a lot of the audience is going to be thinking I'm a bit of a tool. But it, uh, <laughs> and they're right, I am. No one and, disputes and, this. <laughs> and 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 it's just, dude, I've just been sitting with these. I've been sitting with like the the grimy version of these numbers for mm. a week. And this is just the, the the simplest version that I can get to. And I know it's not simple enough. And I'm going to keep working at making it clearer. But yes, so what can I recommend? Dude, I want to recommend um, three, brown, three Brown, One Blue. Is that the name of it? It might be Three Blue, One Brown. Uh, it's a what? YouTube channel uh, about mathematics. <laughs> and and it's just beautifully illustrated if i could if we could hire someone to do those kinds of illustrations for us i think we could make a huge difference to the world man it's, but it's really great they they just go through old maths proofs and strange things and it's it's done in a very intuitive way much better than what nick and i managed to pull off today um and and one of the great advantages is that it speaks to timeless truths and uh, in this time of, of lies and fear 
and self-righteousness, the, the old idea of a universal truth. Oh, mm. It's delicious. It's really oh, satisfying. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to be a maths. You, in fact, I would say the less you like maths at schools, the more likely you are to like this because it's so far from being useful. I think a lot of guys who like maths at school <laughs> understood that it'd be really good for, for making a lot of money. Um, this, is, this is really not that. This is just beautiful. In the same way that like a sports match or a or a really good skateboard trick or tennis shot can be beautiful. Right. So I would like to recommend a uh, 11 minute video um, by a channel called Simple History called The One-Eyed Scout Who Liberated a Whole Town by Himself. It's on YouTube. It's about the story of a guy called Leo Major, who's a French-Canadian Quebecer, who is one of the most impressive war heroes I have ever heard of, ever. He was just a complete madman, uh, a real character, complete lunatic, um, refused to get medals because he thought his general was incompetent at one point. Um, <laughs> and completely Great. Dude, that's amazing. I love that. That is such an <laughs> esteem moment, hey? Like, I do not respect your esteem. Don't right. take, won, take a medal back. He won the second highest award in the British Commonwealth uh, for for gallantry. So the one just below the Victoria Cross. Cross, I can't remember what it's called. And uh, because he thought Bernard Montgomery, who was the general who was going to be awarding it to him, was incompetent, he refused to accept it. (laughs) (laughs) Did we need more heroes like that? We need more people (laughs) rejecting awards. Not like because you're Daniel Day-Lewis and you're like, oh, what about the Native American Indians? Like, no, I think you... (laughs) I think your brain doesn't work. So take, take your take your high fives, take your props, keep them for I, yourself. Uh, anyway, uh, the one-eyed scout who liberated a whole town by himself, it's it's fantastic. And I I have now a, a newfound um, fear of, of what Quebec – I always knew Quebec was a strange place that produced strange people. But after watching this video, I really understand now why the uh, – English-speaking Canadians don't really mess with the Quebecers too much. <laughs> anyway, I think um, I think yeah, we're going to call it. I'm going to check that out. So uh, have a wonderful week. Um, this will probably most of you will probably hear this on Saturday, or maybe yeah, I think it'll go up tomorrow. Oh, um, maybe, wait, can maybe I can today. I can I plug myself as a recommendation as well? Oh yes, 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 yes. Go ahead. So, Shameless self-promotion is what we do this for. So so on Monday, I'll be having a debate, which will be aired on Wednesday on oh, ENCA. Um, I can't remember all of the other panelists. It's two other panelists on Gareth Cliff's show on ENCA. And one of the other panelists is in Bali and Tuli. And okay. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, I'm sure it'll be exciting, filled with uh, memorable moments. You know, it's nice to it's nice to uh, it's nice to have ideas clash. Indeed, and hopefully more light than heat is produced. Indeed, uh, we have far too little of that in South Africa at the moment. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll catch you around. Uh, keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, grr. <laughs>